How do we have, I don't like the term controlling our hormones because I don't, again, that's the little men thing, right? Like the control, this idea of controlling nature, but how do we have a sense of more agency over ourselves rather than feeling like we're being whipped around by our hormones? Because if we feel like we're being whipped around by our hormones, that's often when there's something out of balance. And it doesn't mean it's out of balance with your hormones. It could mean that you're lived experience is at on your needs your actual needs are in conflict with your environment or your world in some way and so how do we rethink that welcome to better with dr stephanie i am your host dr stephanie estima This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part hey, of. Betty's, and welcome I back to, to another episode so of better, better with Dr. Stephanie. Together. It is me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This week, man, do I have a treat for you, I bring you a conversation with a longtime health heroine of mine, Dr. Aviva Ram. Now, if you've never heard of Dr. Ram, she is a midwife as well as a Yale trained medical doctor and board certified family physician with specialties in integrative gynecology, obstetrics, and pediatrics, and uh, also focusing on women's endocrinology. She is a world-renowned herbalist, the author of the textbook, Botanical Medicines for Women's Health, as well as seven other books, most of which are completely uh, highlighted and folded and written in on my library, including The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution, and of course, her new book, Hormone Intelligence. And we'll be talking about that today. And this book explores the impact of the world that we live in on women's hormones and health. And it brings us really a new uh, medicine for women that is at both holistic and natural while also being grounded in the best science um, that medicine has to offer. She is a mother of four, a grandmother of two, who she had the pleasure of midwife or being present at their birth. I mean, how special is that? And quite frankly, um, some of her books have been my Bibles in raising my own children and informing my decisions around healthcare. So we talked about a lot in this conversation. So we started off really exploring women's place, uh, women's medicine and the historical, um, 
tendency to either cut things out or castrate us. And she really speaks to um, how we can begin to bridge the gap in women's healthcare and provide, she provided a lot of tools for helping women feel empowered to speak up at their doctor's office. And she sort of gives like an insider's view, like what the doctor is thinking and how you can kind of navigate around maybe the ego of the doctor or the doctor who's dismissive and maybe bringing in an advocate. And she kind of goes through all of these different scenarios for you to consider. We talk about the medicalization of uh, women. Um, We talk about exposome science, which is a term that I was unfamiliar with before reading her book and uh, very interested to see this type of approach in medicine flourish. And hopefully it does. And of course, We talked about menstrual cycles. As you know, anyone who comes on the show, if they have uh, any knowledge in endocrinology and women's um, biology and physiology, you know we going to talk about the menstrual cycles. So we talked about... Uh, what a normal period looks like, what PMS uh, looks like. We talked about uh, sort of the culture clash and how, you know, the menstrual cycle has traditionally been, um, you know, viewed. And, you know, if we had a different perspective on menstruation, how that might affect our beliefs around menstruation, our behaviors around menstruation. We talked about perimenopause, primary ovarian sufficiency, and menopause. And really, we talked about this idea of, she calls this in her book, women wise. You know, what is this? I like to think of it as like, you know, the older, wiser version of you. What do you believe about your body? And we talked about trauma, you know, hidden causes of stress. It is a great conversation. You will very quickly see why I have for decades now followed her work. She is so well-spoken, so inclusive, and just a wonderful human being. So before we get to our conversation, I wanted to share a word from some of our sponsors and As many of you may have noticed that we have added some sponsors into the mix for the podcast. It is, um, if you've been following the pod for a while, you know that I, this is my love, this is my child, this is my baby. Uh, and it costs a lot uh, in terms of my time, which is also a currency. Um, and of course to produce the podcast as well. And so we have a couple of sponsors. One is my own company called Hello Betty. So Hello Betty, very much like the conversation you are about to hear is really uh, where ancient wisdom meets modern science. So we have in these conversations in Hello Betty, you need to be a part of these conversations. So we talk about everything from nutrition to weight loss to hormone balancing, ways to build a bigger and perkier booty. We talk about pelvic floor rehab, especially for my ladies who have had babies who don't want to jump on the trampoline. We have that conversation. Uh, It's juicy, it's well-researched, and we have hundreds of Bettys Uh, in our membership and we'd love for you to join. So if you are interested in learning more about the Hello Betty membership, I would invite you to come to www.hellobetty.club. That's H-E-L-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y dot C-L-U-B. And you can check out the five pillars of healing that we have for women, fuel, fitness, the divine feminine, female psyche and mindset and female hormones. And I think you're going to love it. And I can't wait to see you inside. 
And without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Aviva Ram. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Aviva Ram, I am just thrilled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Yes, me too. And I have to tell you, I, when I reached out and I originally reached out to your team, um, I have, I think in my message, I had said something like, I have been following this woman for decades, like your books, um, you know, natural, healthy children and babies was basically my Bible when I was a new mom. Um, and then you also wrote another book with Inna Mae Gaskin, um, the, uh, the pregnancy, yeah, she wrote the, the forward. Yeah. The, the natural, natural pregnancy book. Yes. And so these really have influ- profoundly influenced me as a mother, um, mm. and, and as a doctor really as well. And when I heard that you had this new book, uh, hormone intelligence, I knew that I wanted to reach out to you, to tell this to you publicly, but also to have your wisdom, um, on our show. Cause it's a lot of what we talk about and I'm just thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so grateful for that. I really, um, ah, it's very moving. Thank you. You're welcome. I wrote that book, that natural pregnancy book. I wrote that book in handwritten notebooks when I was, I started it when I was 22 and I'm turning 55 in two weeks. So, um, it's really, an, it's such a powerful reflection to hear that it's influenced you and influenced people for so long. Yeah. And so I would love, you know, as we're going to talk about your new book, Hormone Intelligence, and there's such a wealth of information in, it's truly, you know, I said, it's truly a Bible. Like this is such a a must have, I think in every woman's arsenal. And before, just before we get into that, I think it would be really to provide some color and grounding um, in terms of your history, because you are both a midwife and a medical Mm -hmm. doctor. Um, So for those of, those of my um, audience members who have not, who are not familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about, you know, becoming a midwife and then the impetus after that to say, you know what, I'm also, I also want to combine this with a medical degree. So I actually started out going to college to be an MD when I was 15. I got accepted to college when I was 14. It's a whole story about kind of getting out of a bad neighborhood and getting a phenomenal scholarship. And so I was on my way to becoming a medical doctor. And my first semester in college was a very liberal New England school. I got exposed to home birth, midwifery, herbal medicine, organics, kind of just this whole back to the land thing happening in the very early eighties. And I fell in love with it. And I thought, okay, like this is the answer to so many of the global cultural challenges that we're facing. I mean, I was already thinking about the climate. I was already thinking about the environment, 
you know, back then. And so I left school, apprenticed myself to a midwife, studied everything I could get my hands on on herbal medicine, which back then was so fringe. I mean, there were like just a few books published. So, you know, like kind of knocking on doors metaphorically, but cold calling herbalists around the country saying, can I, can I talk to you? Can I ask you some questions? Can, you know, can you like lay your wisdom on me? And one thing led to another. And I ultimately had a practice as a midwife and a practice as an herbalist, which was very exciting and rewarding and nourishing and wonderful. But it was before the inflection point that we're in now where more people are aware of natural therapies. This was still very much at a time when things were extremely polarized. You know, you either were like super outside the box, probably kind of a hippie back to the lander and using herbs and thinking about home birth and healthy food, or you were pretty much in the medical model and there wasn't any in between. But when people who were more natural did have a child with an ear infection or needed to transport from a home birth or had a pregnancy with complications or had a, a, you know, a menstrual or, or gynecologic problem and they needed to go into the medical model, they were so foreign to it. And often the medical model back then was very judgmental of people going from that other, you know, that other place. What you didn't give your kid an, an antibiotic yet for the ear? Do you want your kid to be deaf or die? Like we literally used to hear these kind of things. Now we know for most kids, ear infections, you're actually supposed to wait and watch so that you don't, you know, breed antibiotic resistance and over treat. So things have really come in a big circle, but that was a huge impetus for me to be that bridge and go into the medical system. One, to be that safe haven for people who wanted to, who, who needed to get medical care or wanted medical care for something, um, but wanted to have somebody that they could trust and get information they can rely on from. But I also wanted to change the medical system and, you know, how, how women are treated, how birth is treated, how pediatrics is treated. So I now four kids in tow applied to med school and went to Yale, which was my big choice. I really loved so much about that med school and went into, I did uh, four years at Yale in medical school, a year of internal medicine residency and did family medicine for my, uh, to complete my residency because I really wanted to bring in the obstetrics and pediatrics. And ever since I have been kind of just marrying those worlds, um, educating in the medical world, educating people who are in the medical world, but want to do things differently, educating women who want to take back their health, educating mamas about pregnancy, birth and their children. And, you know, it's, some people say, Oh, like you've had a second career. And for me, it's not, it's just been this like one thread with these different ways of, of it manifesting these different parts of my education and evolution. And, you know, for sure, the MD gives a level of um, opportunity and credibility to amplify that message and start to bring more normalization to the conversation around home birth or, um, you know, any of the number of things that I know we're going to talk about today around hormones and gynecology, but that's basically my story. I have been with my same partner for 37 years. My kids are 27 up to just turned 36. I have two grandchildren who I also had the good fortune of midwifing at home. I practice medicine. I'm licensed in New York state and Massachusetts, but I do telemedicine for people all over the world, actually write books and teach online programs. 
And then my newest book, as we talked about, it just arrived. It literally just arrived. So this is the first time I'm showing it publicly, except my little happy dance and stories. But (laughs) this is the latest book, baby. (laughs) And I'm so excited to talk about it because, you know, as you were just saying, it really, your career has really been a blend of this sort of ancient wisdom and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, botany and uh, herbal medicine with modern science and modern medicine. Um, so let's, let's start, let's talk a little bit about the book. So the new book is called mm-hmm. Hormone Intelligence and there is so much to unpack here. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about menstrual cycles. We're going to talk about the HPA axis, the HPT axis, the HPO, like there's all the, all the places that we can Love go it. in this conversation. But I wanted to start with what I think is the single most important conversation. And we were talking a little bit about this in the pre-chat, which is, how we can begin to uh, potentially coach and empower women to advocate for themselves in a more classical, um, uh, we'll say more stringent allopathic model of care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very hard when we have a health concern, particularly, and then we go into the medical model it's a setup for um, power differentials, right? We're already feeling vulnerable and concerned about something going on. And now we're going to someone that we have hopes and expectations that they're going to have time for us and hear us and calm us and give us answers. And um, so then what happens is frequently, and there's some, you know, of course, some wonderful physicians out there, but what frequently happens is that your physician has you and 25 or 30 or 39 other patients in a day. It's not uncommon for a busy practitioner to see 40 patients in a day in a conventional medical practice. And what happens, you go into the office and you go into the exam room, your nurse comes in and says, put on the gown, right? So that you're ready for your exam. So now you're in this gown that makes you look just like everyone else. You're back end flapping open, you're feeling vulnerable, you're in this very sterile environment usually. And then you're sitting in a chair waiting, 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 waiting. And then the doctor comes in and is fully dressed, you know, in their work clothes, often a white coat, a stethoscope, all these signs of like professionalism. Often the way we're situated, you know, the physician is behind a computer, maybe not looking at you continually. It can be very alienating. I make sure, for example, in my practice that my patients are always physically sitting at least on the same level as me, not lower, but I've been in situations where a physician is, is literally physically elevated. So this power differential happens and it makes it very hard if you're already feel feeling vulnerable and then add to that, maybe you're not the most outgoing person and your doctor is also rush, rushed. So the average physician has 15 minutes with us. And we know that the average physician statistically interrupts their patient within 90 seconds to three minutes of the medical appointments. And now you're like, uh, 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 like you want to say something, So how do we bridge this gap? And then also it may be that you have vague symptoms that you're not really sure what to do about, you know, like what, what to make of them. Um, maybe you, um, are, um, really nervous. Maybe you just get really nervous speaking to authority. And so what happens often we don't get our concerns expressed. Maybe you're looking for alternatives and you're feeling really awkward because you know, your doctor doesn't actually approve of them. Maybe they're not a doctor who values that. And maybe you're even afraid they're going to 
diminish you. And maybe that's even happened before. And maybe you've had lots of previous medical appointments. And so now you're anticipating not getting the help that you need and you're frustrated. So from your doctor's point of view, you know, there we're trained in very conventional medicine. We're trained to be skeptical of alternatives. We're trained to kind of give the little bit of eye roll and say, oh, it's that kind of patient when they've read something on the internet or goop or somewhere else. And we're like, oh, that kind of patient. I mean, really, this is the attitude a lot of times. And we're also dealing with our own stresses. And we know we have 15 minutes and, you know, 30 other patients waiting and then all the phone calls. So there gets to be, and then also if you're in that gown and you you're like number X, Y, Z in that patient's, that doctor's day, you can also start to look a little homogenous, right? They lose track of the person in front of them. So this can be a real recipe for um, uh, like a very bad date. <laughs> like you're just not communicating and you're not hitting it off. But in unlike a date where you could walk away, you're actually depending on some information. So I recommend a number of things. One is understanding and knowing all of this ahead of time so that you are prepared to um, troubleshoot the situation. So one thing is when you go into that, before you even go to your medical appointment, be very clear, as clear as you possibly can, what you're going for and what you hope to get out of it and really write that down. Like I, you know, bring a couple of index cards or a notebook and don't bring it on a tablet or something because if you like realize you're out of juice, and you're like, now I don't have my information. So bring it on something written and have it with you and have it literally say like, I've been having periods every two weeks and they're really painful and I'm getting headaches or write all your symptoms, how long they've been happening for, what you're concerned about. Like, what are you worried about? What's your worst fear? What are you hoping to get from this appointment? I really just want a diagnosis and I want your thoughts on what I might do about this. And I'm also like, I've been reading about this on... Dr. Aviva's website or, you know, WebMD or somewhere. And I'd really love to have your thoughts on it. The more you have that just clearly written down, keeping in mind, it's a short appointment. What are your top priorities and having that script? And then when you go into the medical appointment, rather than changing into that gown, if that's what's expected of you before you have that conversation, let the nurse know I'm happy to change into that if there's an exam needed, but let's, I'd really want to start out with a conversation first. That's going to make me a lot more comfortable, but they're not going to, you know, they may give you a little attitude or huffy, but that's not your problem. That's their problem. Have the conversation, let that primary doctor know, let that care provider know that you get a little nervous, that you have a lot of concerns, um, that you've written them down and that you're actually going to use the script because you want to respect their time and stay on track. And yes, you are managing their ego because if it is a doctor who's trained to like disregard patients, which is quite sadly often the case, um, they'll know, okay, I'm respectful of your time. I really want to get these questions answered. And I really want to hear what you have to say and want to make sure we get to whatever your agenda is too. And so read those questions. Um, and then, um, then if there's a need for exam, then you, you know, you can change, have an advocate with you. It, it's a really powerful tool, but that advocate needs to be somebody who is conf comfortable with power. And so if it's your mom, unless she's like a, an ardent feminist or something like that, a lot of our moms are going to be like, oh, honey, just, especially depending on their age, like just do what the doctor says or like listen to the doctor. That's not what you need. You need someone who's there for you. Right. You need someone who's like, 
elbowing you if the doctor's interrupting and reminding you, no, you have some things that you needed to say, or, or she might say that, like, don't forget you wanted to ask about this. And also acts as a witness. And I don't mean a legal witness. I mean, most of us behave better when there is somebody else in the room. So the chances of your being mistreated or disrespected are, are lower if there's another person who's there on your side. If you have if you're if you have a boyfriend or male partner or husband or just a male friend and it's a male doctor. Sometimes there can be some broy dynamics that happen that don't always serve to your advantage. Um, but similarly, if it's a male partner and a female doctor, there can be some funny dynamics that have, I've seen happen and play out that way too. So I recommend a trusted woman or same gender friend to you that you're going to feel really comfortable with. And, um, you know, those are my big, my big items. I would say if you're in there looking for answers that you haven't been getting easily, bring some articles with you, one or two articles. So let's say you have a thyroid problem and you've gone to your doctor or another doctor in the past and you're like, well, um, you've had thyroid labs and they're fine, but you're looking at a website like mine or like yours and you're saying, oh, you know, there's actually something called optimal thyroid ranges and mine are actually outside of that print out an article from either a, me a medical journal. It's why I always give references in my articles or print out an article from someone like me or WebMD or somewhere. It doesn't be, I'm just, you know, WebMD is just coming to mind. It can be Healthline anywhere that you feel like has some reasonable reputation to it and bring that with you. And again, you might be managing an ego, right? You might be managing someone who has an expectation that people who are looking for alternatives or asking about their own labs are difficult patients. Women are commonly labeled as difficult patients. And here's the challenge too, is that certain medical conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, thyroid problems, a lot of autoimmune conditions in addition to Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid one, um, have symptoms that are classically brushed off as anxiety, stress, uh, neurosis, um, hypochondria, all kinds of things. Just, just being a woman. Yeah. Yes. Malingering or just yeah. being a woman. Right. And the more doctors you go to, to get answers, the more each subsequent doctor thinks of you as a difficult patient that is statistically borne out. So I would highly encourage if you had previously bad experiences with other doctors, stay away from that. Actually, it's it's unfortunate that you can't speak your truth. I mean, obviously, if it's like a physician like me, I want to hear about it. But I I had a patient who applied to be in my practice at one point, and she started telling me in an email, like paragraphs of an email about a previous doctor, doctor. that she had gone to, and he got divorced, and he was you know this. It was like so much. I thought, okay, I don't actually feel comfortable with this patient because she's ragging so badly on another doctor. What if she goes to the next doctor and is just ragging on me? So be aware of that. Um, and again, I don't want to, to suppress you. I'm just telling you as a physician insider, these are the kind of things that get doctors backs up. And I've had that, that particular experience, but in general, I mean, I'm, I understand why people go from doctor to doctor because most doctors don't have the information and don't give you the answers. So expressing it, but in a way that's not like dissing other doctors can, can help your, your cause more. And if you, you know, I always say, look, if you were to hire a decorator, let's say you bought a new house and you could afford to decorate it. 
and you hired a decorator and you told that decorator what you love is mid-century modern and everything your decorator brings to you to show you like the fabrics, the swatches, the images is all country French. You're not going to, you're either going to say to that decorator, uh, you're really not hearing what I'm saying, or you're going to get pretty quickly to a point where you realize you have the wrong decorator. And I would hope that you would let that decorator go rather than pouring money into someone who is not meeting your needs or telling you that you should like something different than you actually like. But we don't act the same way with our physicians, partly because we are vulnerable when we're not feeling well, but it is really important to create that partnership model where you're saying, I want to be a partner in my health. This is what I value. This is what's really important to me. And I'm here because I want to hear what you have to say, but I also really want to have my preferences respected. And if you are mistreated, then go into another physician or another type of provider. It also doesn't have to be a medical doctor. You can go to a nurse practitioner, a nurse midwife. There are some wonderful licensed naturopaths. I know in, in Canada and here in the US at least, you can find alternatives that can also get you what you're looking for without some of that entrapment that comes with the medical model training and the medical model experience. So those are, I mean, long answer, but those are some of the really important pieces that I think um, can really make a difference in your experience. And, you know, go in expecting to have a wonderful experience. So you're not creating a a negative self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't want to go in with like an adversarial attitude, but go in open-minded and realistic as well so that you're prepared for all scenarios. And hopefully you have a wonderful one, but if you need backup, you've got that advocate, you've got your script, et cetera. I think that's excellent because then it really takes the onus you know, women, I mean, you know, you talk about this in the book a little bit, we always blame ourselves, right? Like something Mm -hmm. went wrong. There must be something wrong with me. So when you take an advocate with you, whether, you know, the same gendered advocate, as you mentioned, then you can say, was it, was it me? Or was it, you know, was there something that like, you know, and then you can have that reflection and you also take, you take the, um, the onus off of yourself and you say, okay, this may or may not work. I'm going to present this and I'm going to speak his or her language and I'm going to bring in some studies. And, you know, I, I, at this point, you know, in my career, I often will hear easily weekly. Now women will say that, you know, they were brushed off. They weren't listened to. So I'll say, bring data. This is the language that we speak. You know, if you say, listen, if you bring in your period, you know, your cycle charting, whether you're doing fam or, you know, fertility awareness, uh, cervical yep. mucus charting, or you just have, you know, the clue app or something on your phone, you can say, listen, my period, like I'm getting my period every two weeks. As you said, you know, my, my, I'm bleeding. There's like a, every time I bleed for the last six out of my nine cycles, bigger than a quarter, I see these clots in my, you know, so then you're able to really speak more specifically as you were saying, and you're much. exactly Yes. Yes. And also I think we have such a tendency to gaslight ourselves, right? We get gaslighted. Like well, that's normal. Or or I'm sure that couldn't be happening. I'm sure that could not be a side effect. That depression could not be a side effect of your starting the birth control pill, but it can't, it is right. right? It often is. So having that data really is, is indispensable, but it also can remind you to stay in your truth, right? You, I always say to my patients and I, I say to my students and I say to women online, no matter how much medical education, any doctor has, you know, your body better than anyone else. And if you know that you're cycling, you know, you're having your period every two weeks, it's not normal. And having that data can remind you, yeah, mm -mm, something's not right here. And I do agree. I mean, physicians should be looking at that data and taking it really seriously. Yes. 
One, one of the things I've seen you say online, it's also in your book, um, you say being a woman is not a diagnosis, which, yeah. you know, I think is so profound, you know, because we often are told, oh, it's, you're getting, you're in your forties now. Exactly. It's what happens, you know, you're a new mom. It's just, you know, it's normal to be that tired. Oh, you're a new mom. It's normal to not lose the baby weight. Oh, actually your thyroid <laughs> never, you know, right. maybe it actually is. Yeah. I, I really feel like so many of these diagnoses that are just like, well, it's because you're a woman. Well, no, actually. Right. And so there's this medicalization, um, generally by medical practitioners, uh, you know, this more conservative, more conventional, uh, allopathic doctors and, and big pharmaceuticals. Can you explain, um, you know, what that medicalization tends to look like in practice. And then from there, you know, I'm, I'm deliberately bringing this up because I want to talk about the exposomal science that you present yeah. as a more of a holistic um, way of looking at women's uh, healthcare. Well, you know, it was actually a really interesting challenge writing the book, because on the one hand, I'm encouraging women to make sure that they get diagnoses for things when they're not going right, right? Like if you have um, cystic acne and you have unexplained weight gain and binge eating and depression and irregular cycles, it's really important to make sure that you get a diagnosis if you do in fact have polycystic ovary syndrome. If you have chronic you know, pain every month with your period or in between and symptoms of endometriosis, it's really important to get a diagnosis. So on the one hand, I'm pushing for women to make sure that they do know when something is wrong, what it is, so they can do things about it. But on the other hand, there has been just this absolutely rampant over medicalization or medicalization period of things that are actually completely normal. So, um, childbirth, you know, is a prime example, having a longer labor than fits the standard parameters, which are way too narrow. Um, we end up being told that we're not progressing. It's called failure to progress. I think there's a lot of woman blaming language like that failure to progress. Now it's called labor dystocia. Um, but only in recent years was that changed because the failure was such a negative term that blamed the woman. But then it's like, okay, well, then you need the Pitocin. Well, that, then you need the epidural. Okay, well, it's not happening fast enough. You need the C-section. Or another classic example is the normal changes that women go through in perimenopause and menopause. We're not meant to have high levels of estrogen circulating through our bodies our entire life. We're meant to start having that estrogen come online when we're, when we hit puberty and we're meant for that estrogen, that stronger form of estrogen estradiol that accompanies us through most of our reproductive years to go offline and convert to a milder form of estrogen estrone when we hit menopause. But this belief that menopause is an estrogen deficiency that women are not just physically dried up, but we're like sexually dried up and uh, emotionally dried up and creatively dried up has been a myth that's been perpetuating the rampant um, prescription of hormone replacement therapy for decades now. And yes, it has a role for women who are experiencing significant discomfort in perimenopause, but to diagnose, to prescribe it just because you're a woman and you shouldn't have lower estrogen, like it's this cure, it's this fountain of youth as if we're supposed to stay 30 forever or physiologically 30 forever. These are just a few examples. Other, I think really important examples is the medicalization 
um, and the shaming of body odors. Everyone has a vaginal scent and that vaginal scent is a really important indicator of our well-being. And, um, you know, people ask me, what's a vagina supposed to smell like? It's supposed to smell like a vagina. And it depends on where you are in your cycle and where you are in your life cycles. But also if it's, you know, if there's a very um, unpleasant odor, that is important to, to know and, and give us an indication of something going on. But we have been so taught to um, suppress our body odors, right? Like just the douches and other things that we actually know are harmful for women's health. Yes, so the absolutely. list goes on and yeah. on and on and on of all the ways that our normal functions have been over-medicalized or suppressed. Yeah. It's like where it's like, you know, the, the premise, the philosophical premise is that a woman's body is a lemon. <laughs> it's like, yes, you know, exactly. the woman's body is a lemon and it's, you know, always going to break down and it's always going to need some type of mechanical repair in some way. Exactly. Yeah. So let's contrast. And, and we yeah. certainly can't be our own mechanic, right? So we have to go into right. the mechanic shop for exactly. the parts because right. someone else knows better than we do. Right, right. Exactly. So I wanted to contrast that with exposome science. And this is, yeah. and I'll let you explain it because I've actually, I did not, I have never heard of this term before mm -hmm. uh, you presented it with your book. And I, I would love for you to, you know, paint the picture of what that is and what that looks like. Yes. So exposome science is actually a growing field of medicine and science, scientific research. It's about 15 years old now. It's established at major universities like Columbia University has a, a research branch there. And it arose out of the fields of toxicology and, envi and environmental medicine. So in, in conventional medicine, we do have an understanding, for example, that high levels of lead can cause brain damage, um, you know, in the worst IQ impairment and cognitive impairment and all of that. We have an understanding that environmental exposures can be harmful. But when we get down to it, most doctors don't really have any more understanding than this very vague sense and don't really do much of it at all in clinical medicine, unless maybe they're working with occupational health and they're working with people who work in factories and farms and things like that. Outside of that, there is toxicology, which studies the impact of environmental toxins and natural botanical toxins, all kinds of toxins on human physiology and environmental medicine. And over the past couple of decades, there's been this growing awareness of just how significant an impact um, herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals, but not just those stress as an environmental toxin, um, the impact of how we live and how we eat on our microbiome, nutritional deficiencies, and that as human beings, our health is the product of the combination of our external ecosystems or what we are exposed to. So the exposome and our internal ecosystems. So for example, our stress tolerance, our history of trauma, our nutritional status, the inherent health of our microbiome, because maybe we were born by C-section or had a ton of antibiotics. And so there's actually now a well-established field of research around how all these variables impact human health. For me, this is the missing link in, under, in how conventional medicine approaches conditions. In conventional medicine, let's say you have diabetes. You, you know, you, something's wrong. You're thirsty all the time. You're uh, peeing all the time. You're tired all the time. You go to your doctor and your doctor runs some blood tests and discovers you have diabetes. It's as if the diabetes started right then when you got the diagnosis. 
And there's no consideration really of all the factors that led to it. I mean, we know diet, we know things that happen, but we don't really address any of that. We just basically say, okay, now we have a diagnosis, the next thing to do. And the only thing to do is, you know, make sure you're not getting too much sugar in your diet and make sure you're on the proper blood sugar controlling medications. Whereas from the perspective of this exposome approach or more simply called a root cause approach, we would say, okay, what's actually going on here? Um, let's look at the diet. Let's look at the stress levels. Let's look at um, circadian rhythm. I mean, all these different factors. And when it comes to women and hormonal and gynecologic health, there is so much that we know. And just to give you like a quick, really poignant example, when I was applying to medical residency, I was deeply interested in the impact of endocrine disruptors on reproductive health. So what does it mean if a woman is being exposed to these environmental toxins her whole life, gets pregnant, how does that play out in her fertility, her pregnancy, et cetera? When I was interviewing at a major Ivy League university for residency and the older white male physician who happened to be a, a internationally known endocrinologist saw my application. He said, Dr. Rom, you're, you don't believe in that BPA crap. Do you? He literally, I will never forget those words. You don't believe in that BPA crap. Do you? So now this is, you know, 15 years ago. And I, I said, I actually really do. And this will not be the medical residency for me. Thank you very much. But what was interesting is that about a decade later at that same university in the reproductive endocrinology department, a gentleman named Hugh Taylor blew the lid wide open, finding and proving and publishing about the significant impact of BPA on pregnancy and the offspring. And so much so that in that state, which was Connecticut, they actually banned BPA in labels, uh, in, uh, in receipts that were given out at the grocery store, at the pharmacy and in um, airline tickets, because the preponderance of people who handle those, both giving them out, but also receiving them at shopping, you know, checkout lines are women. And even just that paper, which had BPA in it, was enough to be affecting fertility, miscarriage, and, and fetal development. So this has not trickled into conventional medicine at all. Zero, zero. I mean, really not. And so for me, this book is really about helping women to understand, one, you aren't broken. You're not a lemon by any means. And if you are experiencing hormonal or gynecologic challenges, Yes, sometimes we do need the hormonal treatment or the ibuprofen or even the surgery. But there are so many things that we can unpack before we get to that point, looking at what's going on with our diet. How is that contributing? What's going on with inflammation? What's going on in the microbiome? What are you being exposed to in the environment that you can actually reduce your exposure to, whether that is actual, you know, plastics, BPS, phthalates, all of that, or stress, which is now known as an environmental toxin. And what can we add to nourish our systems back to health? And within that, there's a really big call to understanding that none of what's going on in your body, your hormones, and your health is your fault. It is really 
the result of a culmination um, and combination of years and sometimes decades of these exposures and how they interact with our genetics and our predispositions that get us where we are. And then of course, there's a lot of solutions as you've seen with the book, Stephanie. Yes. And, you know, to your point around the relative impermeability of toxins and this conversation around endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, I still see, I still see very prominent medical doctors in the online space and wherever they will often say things like, well, doesn't the dose make the poison. And we know, of course, that there's this non-monotonic dose response. And when for women who are using more products like makeup and shampoo and lotions, and there are no studies, none, like zero around what happens when you use 200 products, 300 products and the long-term effects of that. So, um, absolutely. And we don't, we don't, you you know, somebody might say, well, I don't really use that much of any, you know, product. I just put on my soap and, you know, I just use my soap and my lotion and my lipstick. And the reality is, is that the, the way hormones work is that it is literally like your entire estrogen load doing all the things estrogen might need to do at any given time would be like the equivalent of one drop of water in an Olympic swimming pool. And so similarly, the amounts that we're getting, a lot of people say, well, we're just getting exposed to parts per million. But if you actually look at hormone measurements, parts per million. And you're so right. Like we don't know what these hormones, what these chemicals are doing individually. We also don't know what they're doing in combination. That's never been studied. And almost every single environment and almost every single industrial or agricultural or pharmaceutical chemical that is out there has been grandfathered in by in in this country at least the EPA very almost none have been studied in women's reproductive health and even a lot of the pharmaceuticals that we use almost all of them have been studied in men so you know even when it comes to basic medications um, women take but women over 50 take more than half of the medications, like 70% of the medications are prescribed and prescribed to women 50 and over. But our metabolism is completely different. We're being given male doses. So often, um, even our pharmaceuticals can act as disruptors to our natural hormone physiology. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Studies have come out in the past few years looking at just even ibuprofen that um, five days of ibuprofen consecutively, we know can affect the gut. 10 days of ibuprofen consecutively can actually temporarily impair ovulation, which may sound not significant, but if somebody is having really painful periods every month and they're taking ibuprofen five, six, seven days a month or higher doses, you know, a few days a month, and then they're not ovulating and they're struggling with their fertility and nobody's 
kind of looking under the hood, we can be missing a lot of big things. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, you know, um, you'll have to pick up the book, um, to get all those recipes, but you do a lot of sort of clean swaps, which I love, you know, and my, my grandmother, you know, so wise, you know, before her time, like the, she was like, the whole house can be cleaned with vinegar. You know, like you can clean the, (laughs) you can clean the floors, you can clean the windows, you can do the sinks and the bathtubs with a little essential oil, vinegar, no dryer sheets. She would always hang her stuff out on those like lines outside. My grandma too. Yeah. My grandma did. My grandma did the, um, little bit of vinegar and newsprint for cleaning the windows. That was her thing. Yeah. Great. So let's talk a little bit about menstrual cycles. You mentioned, you know, these anovulatory cycles that women can experience if they, you know, even really, if you look at some of those genetic SNPs that the liver might have in terms of their ability to detoxify and move these, the ibuprofen into the, into the intermediate for excretion. I mean, that also adds another layer of complexity, but you know, I was so thrilled truly reading. We are so similar because I am so intensely interested. I'm so interested in how to live for women in their reproductive years. And then also when we move into menopause, you know, different cycles, but how we can live in, in alignment and in harmony with, um, our menstrual cycle. And you talk about, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, intuitive eating and hormonal balancing and, you know, what can happen with hormonal dysregulation and self-care. So why don't, why don't we start, um, with what a normal menstrual cycle looks like, and then we can maybe talk about some of the, um, some of the ways that we can go awry. And I, I have a feeling that you're like me and that you're very much particular with words, because I hear people, like I would have women come into my practice and say, I just get these like, you know, regular headaches. Like I I get regular headaches around my period. And I'm like, no, common, (laughs) not normal. Right. It's a common, it's a common symptom. It's not necessarily normal. So yeah, common and normal are so different, right? Cause like by definition, normal can mean common. And, but we, we exchange common and normal for healthy a lot of times, like just because everyone's experiencing it doesn't mean we were meant to experience that. So, okay. So a normal menstrual cycle generally starts somewhere between 12 and 16 years old and typically goes, we have about 400 menstrual cycles in our life. And then the average international age of menopause is 51. Menopause means you haven't had a period for one year and then you're officially in menopause. All the years in between, keeping in mind that our menstrual cycles are very sensitive. I like to think of the menstrual cycle as like a monthly check-in because you really have an opportunity to kind of see what's going on in your life, in your world, how it's showing up in your menstrual cycle based on some of these normal parameters that I'll share. But it's also a huge opportunity to course correct. So the normal menstrual cycle should be somewhere between 26 and 34 days long. So if you've got this idea that you have to like have your period at the full moon and ovulate at the new moon. Actually, it doesn't usually work that way. Very few women globally around the world that is have 28 day menstrual cycles. The international average is actually 29.5 days, but anywhere from 26 to 34 days is considered normal. And then it should be about the same length every month, give or take four days. So if it's 28 days, one month, 32 days, the next month, um, you know, 
uh, 29 days the next month, 31 days, that's actually still considered normal. If it's less than 26, more than 34, or varying by more than four days on average a month, if it varies more than four days, one month, it doesn't matter. It's like, fine. You know, if you have one period, that's like 25 days, something wonky was going on. Maybe you were traveling, maybe you were sick, maybe you were stressed, maybe you know, you lost sleep because you work a night shift. Those things happen. But if you're seeing these patterns for really for three or more consecutive months, that's kind of when a heads up or unless you have a serious symptom that's new, like suddenly you have new pain. Um, Your period shouldn't require you to change pads or tampons more than six times a day. And it shouldn't require for the, because you shouldn't be bleeding through them more than that. They shouldn't be saturated six times a day. You should never have to double up um, just to get through your cycle. And you should never have to double up on a, you know, like a maxi pad, because then that is a sign of heavy bleeding. They shouldn't last more than seven days. So a heavy period is more than six pads or tampons a day, having to do things to like work your life around your cycle. Like, oh, I can't go play soccer that day because I'm going to hemorrhage through my pads. You know, like if that's happening, that's interfering with your life. That's a heavy period. Or if you're bleeding more than seven days. Conversely, if you barely ever have to change your pad and you're or bleeding less than three days, that's not usual either. That's not that's considered uh, something's going on low estrogen or something. Ovulation usually happens about 14 days, give or take before menstruation. And ideally we may notice some changes in our mood, our behavior, the things we're interested in, the forms of exercise, things like that, that we want to do around ovulation. And we may notice some changes in our mood. Premenstrually, we may feel a little bit more like staying home or reading a book or watching Netflix, but not like going out to the party premenstrually. That's all normal. You may feel a little pelvic fullness premenstrually, even a little tiny bit of aching because it's a naturally slightly more inflammatory process, but you should never have to take ibuprofen or Tylenol or Aleve or anything like that Motrin for your period. Um, when I say never, I mean, obviously if you're under significant stress, if something's going on, it may be like a one-off thing, but if you're having to take it every month, if you're having to take it for a full day every month, then something else is going on. Either there's inflammation, endometriosis, something that should be explored. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, it's normal to have like a little tiny bit of water retention because of the prostaglandins that we're producing. It's, it's normal to have a little bit of breast fullness, but anything that's actually making you uncomfortable and certainly anything that's getting in the way of your quality of life or the ability to do anything like you should not not be able to do anything, except I've heard that you can't go to the Komodo Dragon National Park during your period because they're so sensitive to blood that they will attack a menstruating woman. Oh, but aside from my that, goodness. <laughs> I know I just, I have a, I have a six-year-old grandchild and he loves these like survival things. So we just learned that last week that, that is a good piece woman, of information. <laughs> wow. Right. Never pee if you're being attacked by a tiger because they will think you're marking your territory and never go around a Komodo dragon if you're menstruating. So, you know, other than that, there's nothing we can't do. So if something and if there's something you don't want to do, that's your choice, right? Like, like that's your own proclivity. But if there's something taking you out, that's not normal anymore. 
that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the rundown on what a normal menstrual cycle is. Um, you know, it's normal to have clots periodically. Um, not, you don't want to be clotting up all the time. Something's going on. If you're having clots regularly in your menstrual cycle, a lot of teenagers do, and it's, it's pretty normal, but if you're having clots that are bigger than the size of a quarter, if you're frequently having clots, that's also um, a sign that you, you, you're having heavy bleeding and you want to get that checked out. So there are a lot of things on the internet, like your period blood should look like this for healthy period blood. A lot of that is exaggerated and creates beautiful brands that people have around hormone health, but it's often um, this very reductionist, overly simplified way of, or overly complicated in some ways, way of kind of like adding more pathology when there isn't. So if there is some sort of hormonal dysregulation, if there's a woman yeah. listening now and she's saying, yeah, you know what? I do have to double up on those maxi pads. Like I actually, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book where I had, to, I knew that the day that I was, that I would get my period, I had to bring at least two pairs of pants with me. Cause I knew if I got mm-hmm. not stuck, but if I was in an initial uh, appointment with someone where they're typically yeah. longer and I was sitting, you know, I knew that the chair was going to be like, I was going to bleed through the pants. And that was just my own. It's really stressful, right? I mean, I, when I, um, when I went into menopause, well, before I, I hit menopause at 54, but that like six months before I was having these irregular cycles. And one night I was like sitting on my sofa in my living room. It's a gray sofa. And I got up and I had started bleeding and cause I was having like, you know, just like three weeks and then five weeks. And I got up and I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot what this was like from being a teenager. Right. You know, my daughter was there. She's like, mom, so teenagery. <laughs> um, but it's stressful for women who experience that. Um, you know, you're in so many women have like, oh, like I sit sideways in my chair, like without anyone noticing, cause I don't want to get up and there would be blood on right. the chair or right. I always have a sweater I can throw around my waist. And so awkward. So if that is happening, um, you know, there are a number of things to look at. First, there is a con- condition that's a genetic condition called von Willebrand syndrome that often doesn't get picked up um, in teenagers and women until their 20s. So if you are having like just gusher hemorrhagic level periods, it is worth actually getting your genetics checked to see if that's part of what's going on. Um, it's really important to look at our estrogen levels. Um, some women do naturally produce a lot of estrogen, but we're getting a lot of estrogen from our environment that can make us have really heavy periods. Um, and then also if you're having very irregular periods, so the periods are quite far apart. Um, and then you do bleed. If that endometrial lining has been building up for months, you're more apt to have a quite heavy period. So those are some of the things to look at. And then anyone who is having really heavy periods, you know, you may be more likely to be a little bit anemic or a lot anemic, and you might feel more tired and a little more brain foggy and sluggish. So getting your iron levels checked is really important too. And one of the things that we often hear when a woman will present to her, um, you know, PCP or her primary care uh, physician is they'll, she'll get a script for the pill, right? Like she'll get a script for heavy bleed, you know, you have acne, you have this, you know, you have abnormal periods, like, let's give you the pill. Why you have a uterus, you yeah, have breasts, yeah. let's just give you <laughs> You have a uterus, you, you know what, you have a let's lack of, yes, you have a lack <laughs> of this hormonal con- uh, contraception. So what, why can't some of these, um, you know, in aggregate, we can say maybe some of these symptoms will, um, you know, they line up with premenstrual syndrome, um, you know, maybe not so much the bleeding, but like, you know, the water retention, the heavy breasts, maybe the mood, irritability, depression, anxiety. Why can't that be fixed with the pill? Can you explain a little bit about why this is not 
or yeah. may, maybe it is a solution in some cases, but why is it not sort of like, you know, when we're painting broad strokes, why can't this solve all of our ails? Yeah. So, I mean, the pill, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants, which are sometimes used effectively for um, premenstrual syndrome, especially the emotional components of it, um, they can help with symptoms in a lot of women. So I don't want to just say, you know, these are off the table, never use them. And I don't want anyone to feel judged or ashamed if they are using them and they are getting good results. But the bottom line is what those do is they suppress your ovarian function. They are suppressing your natural hormonal cycles and giving you an alternative hormonal kind of flat line. And so what's happening is that you're getting symptom resolution, but without ever getting to the underlying causes. And the problem with that is that those underlying causes, whether it is inflammation can show up later in other ways. If it is high levels of estrogen, that can show up later in other ways. So looking you know, to the underlying causes becomes much more deeply therapeutic. You're actually resolving what's causing the problem and you're resolving things that can lead to other things. So for example, um, with polycystic ovary syndrome, one of the underlying problems is metabolic disruption, right? The insulin resistance is often a piece of that. So just giving a woman the pill may help with her acne. It may help with giving, you know, medication may help with hair loss. It may help with certain of the symptoms and that can be tremendous. I mean, living with cystic acne can cause severe depression, social anxiety and and disrupt someone's life. But if we don't address the insulin resistance, that can still show up later as pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and have all the lifelong consequences of untreated diabetes. So you think you're getting treated, but you're not. And then it shows up later. And that's a problem. And I've I've had so many women who were put on the pill. I'm sure you've seen this too, Stephanie. They're put on the pill when they were teenagers for acne, irregular periods, you know, all the whatnots that get us put on the pill. And then they come off it when they're 32, ready to have a baby. They want to get pregnant. And they're not having their cycles or their cycles are right back to irregular or the acne has come right back because they've basically spent, you know, 15, 17 years having their cycles and symptoms suppressed. Boom, they're off of it. And now they're facing that again and first have to treat that before they get pregnant. So it's, it's really important to look under the hood. Yeah. And that's, that's important because I think that they're still exists a narrative. And I've seen uh, OBGYNs um, really poo-poo this idea that the pill could ever affect fertility after the cessation of it. Like we, you know, there's, I've, yeah. And and for for some people, it's not an issue, right? Like they take the pill, they get off it, they're pregnant, they're happy, you know, no worries. Um, But for some, you know, when you're, and I remember when I wanted a baby, I wanted to get pregnant and it couldn't happen. You know, and we, I was pregnant in the, right. Like I was pregnant in the second month of trying, but that first month when I got my period, I was like, oh my God, what is wrong? Like, so you have to, uh, you have to be a little, I think there, there requires some sensitivity and compassion because there are women, as you were saying, on the pill for decades and, you know, don't really think twice about it. And then they do have trouble, you know, reinitiating that brain ovarian, you know, that access. Yeah, that exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, 80% statistically of women who come off the pill will cycle again within three months and have normal cycles. But what we don't account for is that 60% of women who are on the pill 
are on it for non-hormonal contraception. They're already on it for a hormone imbalance. So my suspicion is if were the studies to be done, which they haven't, we were to look at the women who went on it for non-hormonal contraceptive, for non-contraceptive reasons, but who went on it for hormonal problems, right. that would probably be where we saw that higher proportion of women who come off it and they're right back to facing those problems again. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a couple of ways that women can live in harmony with their cycles as it relates mm-hmm. to, you know, self-care and slowing down and when to speed up. And when, you know, I, in, we're recording this, you know, on a, on a full moon. So I hope we're infusing some of that full moon energy into this, into this conversation. This isn't just a full moon. This is like the full blood flower moon lunar eclipse. And we've got some major action happening here. Yes. <laughs> like some major <laughs> feminine spiritual action here. I love it. And so I, I think it's, yeah. it's a great time to to think about how we can use the wisdom of that ever-changing, you know, hormonal milieu to be able to uh, integrate that into our workflow and productivity and self-care. Can you can you shed some light on on why those things are important for us to consider in our menstrual cycle? Yes, I mean we live in a however you cut it. You know, what's that old James Brown song? It's a man's world. Oh yeah, and you mm-hmm. know, there's a very um, the way our entire culture is set up is really around strive and drive and, you know, taking time off or stepping back or setting boundaries isn't really considered the way to be successful. Listening to our bodies is not considered the way to be successful. We override our bodies all the time with caffeine and in some professions, you know, other stimulants. And so we're really driven to keep up with this very male dominated industrial or post-industrial work schedule that doesn't take into account nature and natural rhythms and not to sound woo woo or biologically reductionist. I'm not saying everyone needs to go into a red tent every month and howl at the moon unless you want to tonight would probably be a great night to howl at the moon. Mm -hmm. Actually, I might just actually have to do that (laughs) with the coyotes that live out back. But, um, to start to pay attention to that natural cyclic rhythmic um, biology that we have. And if yours isn't cyclic, that's okay too. If it's irregular, that's okay too. But to start to do what I jokingly call me search instead of research, just start paying attention to what you notice throughout your cycle. I love writing it down, but doing, I actually, it's so funny here. I, I just happen to have on my desk because I was going to do a video of these, but um, these are my moon charts from back all the way to, um, these go back to like 1982, I think, or 1981. Um, these are my lunar charts. I have all these different beautiful lunar charts. Oh, wow. Look at that. Um, mm. But having, um, there's so many different kinds to <laughs> this one, um, having that ability to either paper chart or use a tracker and start to pay attention to how long is my period? How many days is it lasting? When do I start to notice that actually I'm kind of wanting to go within and I'm getting really irritable and cranky because I'm not able to, and I'm having to, I need a break from, you know, taking care of the kids or I need a day off or I need to just get out into nature. And just start to notice, because I think even in noticing, even if you can't not show up at your day job that day, because, you know, you have to show up, but noting, okay, I feel different rather than like, what's wrong with me? I'm tired. I'm cranky. I'm irritable. or having it, you know, externalize where you're acting it out. You can just say, all right, right now I'm wanting to do that. 
and I'm forced to do this and it's creating a, a, a schism between what I need and what I can do. Sometimes just even acknowledging that and honoring that can be incredibly liberating emotionally, starting to pay attention to who you're drawn to and who, who you're attracted to, um, whether that's emotionally or spiritually or sexually throughout your cycle. Uh, when are you inclined to do certain kinds of exercise? You know, if you start a brand new, like in high intensity workout three days before your period, you're much less likely to stick with it because our pain threshold goes down, our muscle um, function actually changes a little bit premenstrually. So that may be a better time to do yoga or some gentle Pilates or take a walk in nature. Whereas right after your period, as you're moving into that upswing of ovulation hormonally, that's a great time to do that three day, you know, juice cleanse that you were wanting to do or do that brand new CrossFit program or, you know, high, you know, hiking, high intensity hiking, because it, it's more physiologically aligned. Um, if you notice that um, you're paying attention to your food cravings, we know from a lot of studies now, uh, Marty Hazelton's done some of this work, for example, on research on it. She's looked at how we, how we shift throughout our cycles. Um, we may be more inclined to eat more lightly and there are evolutionary biology reasons for this around ovulation, but we may be more inclined to crave carbs or fats or sugar premenstrually. If you know that and can anticipate that, you can have a really beautiful organic brown rice pudding with almond butter or a chocolate chia seed pudding or even just some dark chocolate and some berries instead of hitting up that like bag of cookies. Um, so anticipating these things can be really you know, in, in the least, just really interesting and fun and um, at best can give you an enormous amount of data around how your physiology influences your life experience and also how your world influences your physiology and your inner world. It's, it's very beautiful. It really is. And all and you have I to just start tracking and pay attention. Like that's all you have to, and it's not like you have to like meticulously track. You can just have a notebook or a journal or, you know, have a, have a calendar like this. You can get zillion, there's zillions online, have a calendar, stick it in a notebook and then just like make a little note in the morning or make a little note at the end of the day. Oh, like this is what I was going through and here's how I'm starting to see patterns. I love that. And I think it's so, um, this is one of the ways I think that as women, we really, we stop acting like we're little men, right? Where we, we yes. kind of divorce ourselves from the patriarchy in a way and say, this is how I need to attend to my soil today, right? Like I'm going to mm -hmm. either do this big high intensity thing about to ovulate or, you know, or I'm going to go for the walk. I'm going to do the Pilates. I'm going to, you know, maybe have some journaling time and there's no white knuckling, right? When we, when yes, we're trying I love to, that. Yeah. I, and I think that when we try to eat the same way, I mean, I tried this for years, you know, I sort of talk about this in my book, how I, this journey that I always like, I pretended like I was a little man as long as I could, right. Totally ignoring my own physiology. And I would literally like try to hold on for dear life that week four. And I wanted the carbs and was denying myself. And then what ends up happening is you clear out the pantry, right? Like you eat the cookies, <laughs> you eat the chips, you eat the crackers. So I, and I, if you do, that's all good too. But if it's not making you feel great, you know, right. that's the thing. It's like, 
like, right. how do we have, I don't like the term controlling our hormones because I don't, again, that's the little men thing, right? Like right. the control, this idea of controlling nature, but how do we have a sense of more agency over ourselves rather than feeling like we're being whipped around by our hormones? Because if we feel like we're being whipped around by our hormones, that's often when there's something out of balance. And it doesn't mean it's out of balance with your hormones. It could mean that you're lived experience is at on your needs. Your actual needs are in conflict with your environment or your world in some way. And so how do we rethink that? You know, how do we grab that space for ourselves for, you know, two hours on that day, right before our period, when if we just knew that we had that two hours to take that bath or take that walk and write in our journal and have that cup of tea, it would nourish us and decompress us. So that we're not, I love that, that idea of like white knuckling through, um, that adds to the stress and the tension and the inflammation and the agitation that ultimately just makes us explode, you know? Right. Right. So much wisdom there. And, um, I want to make sure that we touch on menopause because this is, mm. um, you know, whenever I talk about cycles, you know, my, my, uh, I, my lived women, you know, my well-lived women that follow me are like, what about menopause? What about us? Cause it, it often seems like this is a, a cohort that is often ignored. We tend to yeah. say, well, you're not a woman anymore. You're not reproductively useful. So yep. no more sexuality. You might as well just, you know, whatever. Carolander a rock. <laughs> go into that, go yeah. into the grandma cave. Exactly. <laughs> Disappear. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And I, it's funny because when I was writing the book initially, I had a whole section on menopause. And then my publisher said, this book is getting too long, Aviva. I think you should take out the menopause section. And I said, ah, yeah, no, that's not happening. The menopause section is going in here for two reasons. Half of all women are in menopause now, or half of all women are in, over their 50 or 50 and over in the United States. And also I'm not going to make that group of women disappear, right? This right. is a group of women that needs to be here. And I want this book to be a book that whenever you get it, like if you get it in your twenties, you're still looking at it in your forties and fifties. If you get it in your thirties, you're giving a copy to your mom. If you get it in your forties, you're giving a copy to your daughter and your niece and your mom, you know, I want it to have that longevity. And yes, I mean, it is such a time where culturally and historically in the Western world, right? In, 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 in almost any indigenous culture that I've ever studied, learned about, or visited, the elders are revered in our culture. I mean, you don't have to be elderly. You'd just be 50 and or 50, 48 and over, or say you're in menopause. And now you're in like this old category. Interestingly, women in our fifties and older have more and better sex than any population. Really interesting more orgasms, better orgasms, more sex, more fulfilling sex, because we know what we want. We know what we like. Um, we're more confident in expressing it. We're more comfortable in our bodies. Really interesting. Whereas women in their twenties are having less sex than the last three generations, partly because everyone's on electronics and not making time for intimacy. So we can learn a lot about comfort in our bodies and, you know, just juiciness and confidence. Um, as we age, which is really beautiful and powerful. I think we need to just completely reframe this word aging. Um, you know, I like to consider these the queen years because I, you know, I'm almost 55. I don't feel like I'm a crone. Um, crone feels. Oh, they have the much, worst names too, like crone. Yeah. And even if you and look no, at the hag. Like I don't mind. Yeah, hag, I know. I don't mind crone only because it's such an old word. And like that triple goddess was mother maiden or maiden mother crone. But there feels oh. like there's 
something in between there to me that is like these very rich years of we're not in our 80s, 90s, but we're in this other phase. And think about this. We have like 30, 40, 50 years after menopause, depending on when we go into it and hopefully having a very long life. That's a substantial amount of time. Yeah. That said, just like with any of the other, you know, cumulative environmental exposures, lifelong exposures and insults that have happened with nutrition, microbiome, stress, oxidative stress, inflammation, all of that, it is a time when as we shift from the dominant form of estrogen we've had most of our lives, estradiol, to a less potent form, estrone, Uh, The estradiol is more protective against inflammation. It's more highly metabolic. So we burn more fat when we have estradiol. Um, It's more, it creates more um, proliferative, you know, tissue. So our tissue is plumper and juicier. Our breasts are fuller. Our uh, vaginal tissue is, is fuller. Um, So as we transition into that estrone, um, we may be more predisposed to uh, developing autoimmune conditions if we have higher inflammation or autoimmunity gets triggered. Um, we may experience sleep problems as progesterone goes down, vaginal dryness or urinary infection or urinary inflammation, irritation as estradiol goes down and estrone comes on, um, hot flashes and night sweats, migraines as estrogen drops and plummets. So there are symptoms that Um, You know, I I think like with menses, like with having our periods and our cycles, it shouldn't cause us misery or disruptive discomfort. And if it is, then we want to look to what are the imbalances, again, in the environment, in the ecosystems, in our diet, in our sleep, in our stress, all of that. And what can we do to restore and support and nurture for some women that may be using a small dose of hormones? But there's so much we can do along the way. And like with the pill, we can't use hormone replacement therapy in the same way, right? Like you're a woman in menopause, you have a uterus, you had a uterus, you have breasts, you have over, take the pill, take the HRT. Um, And similarly, like we don't with the pill, we don't adequately educate women about the risks. We don't adequately educate women about the natural alternatives and what we can do. And we don't check in, right? Like the way women get put on the pill at 15, 16, 20, whatever, and don't come off it until usually they're ready to have a baby. That's the usual reason people come off it. If they do, we put women on HRT, hormone replacement therapy at 48, 50, 52. And then maybe at 60, somebody's like, oh, you're still taking that. Do you still need that? And then we finally, after these, you know, a decade or more of estrogen exposure or hormone exposure, we think, oh, right. Hmm. Didn't, didn't see that risk coming. So, uh, you know, I want to, I want us to use the therapies that make us feel more comfortable. Um, I really, the, the power of reframing aging and menopause is so important. I, you know, I actually didn't anticipate personally, I had very, I had very good fortune. I had very easy menstrual cycles my whole life. No gynecologic problems, got pregnant at the drop of a hat easy home births, easy breastfeeding. I mean, honestly, it's been very smooth for me. I've been very, very fortunate. Um, And not so much for my mom. My mom struggled with period pain, ovarian cysts, thyroid problems, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, But I did not anticipate the experience of transitioning into 
perimenopause, just like simple changes in my muscle tone in my, my face or changes in my hair and how that felt, especially in the wellness world where women are already, I mean, women who are like inarguably gorgeous fashion model kind of people who are already like picture perfect getting Botox at 30 or breast jobs at 32 and uh, filler and uh, you know, what that means when you are aging naturally and you're up against a culture that really already when we're 30 is telling us yes. we should be doing something to fix ourselves. And it, it was more, honestly, more challenging. The other thing I found challenging is, you know, when we're going through puberty or going into puberty, even though it's hard in so many ways, and I don't think any of us would want to go through puberty again, if we had the choice of a, of a part of our lives to relive, that would probably not be it we're anticipating the excitement of becoming adults and gaining our autonomy and becoming women. When we become pregnant and become mothers, we're transitioning into something that's a very new welcome realm. But when we go into menopause, our culture doesn't transition us into this now wise, revered, valued, experienced member of the community who's also freed up to be a complete freaking powerhouse because your kids are grown and you're not having to think about, you know, making dinner at a certain time if you're working on a project and you're inspired. But I didn't anticipate, and it's really causing me a lot of thought of how important it is to, I've even been considering creating an online menopause celebration um, just for women to, you know, have that time together to really celebrate it. And I I find myself looking to some of the most incredible role models. I mean, Michelle Obama at 58, you know, showing up on a talk show with like, you know, like a cutout top and like very empowered and very empowered and obviously in her sexuality and in herself as a creative being or Helen Mirren or Yoko Ono, who's like killing it like in her eighties and still like Mm-hmm. You know, um, looking to these role models for a new definition of what what it is to be a fully embodied, creative, sexual, empowered being at any age, um, and just redefining it. And it, it does it's, it does require a lot of defying our culture, but also in our own story to ourselves. Yeah, and you you talk about this idea of honoring your womb, like whether it is, you know, making, you know, has the capacity for making babies or we're in menopause. And I think, you know, I, I've talked about this, uh, again, very much aligned with you. I think that our wombs are the ultimate alchemists. Like we can, when you honor the creative prowess and the, the capacity to turn pain into power, um, mm-hmm. through the womb, uh, I think that, you know, any woman of any age, if we can tap into that, you know, you might call it the root chakra, the, you know, the, um, uh, the sacral chakra, um, you, these, these energetic points, um, yeah. and I think are so powerful. And I think, you know, as you're saying, you know, if a woman can begin to redefine these stories, these belief systems that she has, then she can begin to fully step into who she's truly meant to be, whether or not that can, conf- that conforms with, you know, the, you know, societal or the culture of norms at the time. Cause we also know totally. that those things change. Like I grew up, Kate Moss was the, was the body type. And yeah. I was, I'm like, I'm, I'm Portuguese. Like that's never going to happen. Like I have, but I have a butt, like there's no way that yeah. I'm ever going to look like that. You know, now we sort of see that it's sort of this Kardashian type of very totally. voluminous 
you know, body, but also understanding that in 10 years and 20 years, it's going to be something different. So when yeah. this target and, always and moves. Answer, yeah. Yes, I love that. And also to add to that, you know, I, I, a lot of times when I'll write something about womb wisdom or womb power, I'll really acknowledge, you know, to those women, as I said, you know, 30% of women over 60 will have a hysterectomy. So right. I really want to acknowledge like to those people who have had their womb removed for any reason that you've had that done. You know, I think of it as like, you know how people say when they have a phantom limb, they yeah. can still feel feel yeah. it there because yeah. the, neuro, the neurologic connection is still there. And so even if you've had your womb removed, you can still tap into that energetic power, still tap into those life force connections that we're talking about, that transformative power is still there. And so don't, you know, despair if that has been the case for you totally just drop right into that space. That's great. Yeah. And there's that divine connection that I think that is really, I mean, we all, and I think to become a medical doctor, you know, to, to do the work, you know, I'm, I'm a chiropractor by training. So, you know, to go through, you know, that type of schooling, you have to be able to channel that masculine energy, like do, mm -hmm. do achieve, achieve, achieve. And totally. I, so many of us, myself included, I really have to think about dropping into my feminine to slow down yeah. and to think, cause otherwise I'm very, very comfortable running myself into the ground. Like I'll yeah. forget, you know, like it's just, and I think many women, totally. you, don't, you don't have to be a doctor. Like it's just, you have life. Like there's so many things coming yeah. at you all the time and the boundaries that you're talking about, very feminine endeavor. It's like, this is what's okay. And this is what's not right. Well, there's so much scarcity. There's so much fear. I mean, you know, people's socioeconomic situations may cause them. My mom was a single mom in a housing project. She had to work two jobs and then come right. home and take care of two kids. I mean, sometimes circumstances just really require us to push. And sometimes we're just people who are very inspired. You know, clearly you are clear that I am with a lot of drive and commitment to accomplish or or create or make change. I think of it as elastic, you know, and I think of the, the term resilience as a piece of elastic, because if you can basically, if you stretch a piece of elastic, not beyond its capacity, and then you let it go and you stretch it and let, you can pretty much do that forever. As long as you are not going beyond the capacity. And as long as you are letting go, it's when we stretch a piece of elastic beyond its capacity or keep it in that place for too long, that ultimately those fibers break down and it loses its ability to rebound. So even like, you know, I've right now with this book launch, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible amount of work, incredible. And a lot of hours, it reminds me of being in residency in some ways. But then I also know that I'm building in time each day where I like hit pause, decompress, don't let myself go back on the computer, build in time each week, even if it's a couple of hours to read a novel and, you know, be off electronics and then build in time after that push. So I know I have time that I'm going to hit pause to some extent after the launch and regroup. And I think that is so key is, are we pushing and resting, pushing and resting? Or are we just constantly in this incessant go? And that's where we get stuck. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, when we, when we talk about chronic low-grade stress, chronic low-grade yeah. inflammation, um, you know, unresolved trauma that lives in the nervous system. It's that Oof, pulling. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that analogy around sort of bringing it to its, you know, its capacity. It's like the, the, the matter's capacity and then releasing so yeah. much, so much of the time we're always like just right here, like just, you know, this frenetic energetic um, uh, vibration. So I think that that's really important, even as a very simple, you know, how you start your day, 
how you close the day. These can be five minute, three minute practices sometimes, especially if you have little ones running around. Um, Yeah. Those are two things I'm really committed to is how I start and end my day. So I really try to start my day without getting onto electronics right away. Just want to have a slow start. And even when my kids were little and breastfeeding, you know, or they're jumping on you, even if you need to set your alarm to get up 15 minutes earlier before you get the kids ready for the day, if, if they're going out to school. Um, but if the baby comes in or your toddler comes in to nurse or the kids are clamoring, you just snuggle them in. Everyone can do a few minutes of breathing together. And then at the end of the day, that no electronics, ideally, ideally an hour before bed, read an analog, like read an actual physical book, not a Kindle or anything like that. And just do a few minutes of deep breathing. I think journaling is really powerful too, for that ability to dive in and connect in with ourselves and just kind of feel, I think we get so, I know for me, I get very stuck between here and here. And obviously like a lot of my work is talking and teaching and thinking and writing. And so just dropping in by doing some soft belly breathing, letting my belly unzip, you know, like we zip ourselves in as women, like letting my belly relax, breathing into my belly, expanding all of that. It's like right before bed and in the morning makes a huge difference. So juicy. I love it. Mm. Tell everybody where they can find the book. This is something that um, I, you know, I've had the pleasure of reading. It is, as you said, I think it is absolutely a perennial bestseller. Uh, I think it'll be something that generations to come will be able to talk about. And that's actually what I, that's what I hope, you know, a book like this will achieve where you have women of different generations talking about the experience of being a woman and how we can start sharing stories with our, with our girls, our up and coming girls, so that they don't carry on this sort of, you know, baggage or, you know, this, you know, trauma or this, you know, ancestral lineage that we pass on to them because we're not awake to some of these um, changes. So where can we find your book? It's called Hormone Intelligence. And then where can people interact with you if they want to find out more about you, your work, your practice? Okay. So first of all, I just want to tell you, I could talk with you all day and listen to you all day. It's lovely. I love this conversation. And um, for those of you, thank you. For those of you who want to get a copy of Hormone Intelligence, get it anywhere that you love getting books. In Canada, I don't know the exact release date. So um, I would check on Amazon Canada and that there is a link to that over at my website, avivaram.com forward slash book, wherever you get your book. And I, you know, I love it if you can support independent bookstores too, they really need our, our support and help right now. Um, but then go wherever you get your book, go to avivaram.com forward slash book, because there are some seriously juicy gifts for you. If you pre-order my book by June 8th, you will get completely free access to my 28 day gut reset, which is, if I say so myself, it's an incredible program. There's even a baby named Avi after me, whose mom got pregnant after two years of an infertility diagnosis, had tried everything, did the reset. And then two months later, she was pregnant. So we've had some really incredible results with that. And it's, it's also a gorgeous nourishing program. Um, you will also have access anytime you pre-order or purchase the book. It goes officially on sale June 8th. But if you purchase the book anytime between now and the end of June, you will have access to either a ticket to or the replay for a full evening and full day event with me and 12 other teachers who will be talking about women's hormonal health, um, 
interaction with the medical model, so many wonderful things. And that's going to be introducing um, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein introducing me and interviewing me about the book. And that's June 4th, 5th. But again, you'll have replay access anytime that you buy the book through June. Once you're there at the avivaram.com forward slash book page, you'll see the instructions, but you're also then in my website. So um, if you download, if you opt in for the book and those gifts, um, you'll be in my newsletter, which we generally do once a week. It's a new blog, podcast, et cetera. So you'll kind of get all the deets on what I'm doing there. We don't sell the list. We don't do any marketing other than when I have a course or something. The other places to hang out with me are my Instagram, doctor, so dr. Aviva Ram, or Facebook, Aviva Ram MD. That's where I live. I am starting a new form of medical practice in September, 20, September, October, 2021, which is going to be a group medical practice. So I can reach more women, but also offer a new experience. So I'm also very excited about that. And you can learn, you'll learn about that when I post about it, either in my newsletter or on my social media. That's about, that's about it for me, basically. So generous. I like those gifts and bonuses. Those are exciting to me. I'm going to definitely opt in for those. I love that. All right. Well, this is just been such a delightful conversation. Um, really just a treat for me. As I said, I've been, you know, aware of you following you, uh, your protocols and your work, and you have just profoundly influenced me as a mother, as a doctor and, you know, the work that I, you know, I'm putting out in this world. So I want to, I can't just been, wait to read your book. So yes. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm going to be getting a copy of it myself. So yes. I'm, I'm sending excited. you one after this conversation. Oh, thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. This thank has been you. great. Thank you everybody. And thank you so much, Stephanie. All right. All right. So that was my conversation with Dr. Ram. As I leave you for this week, I do want to shout out Amy from the motherland from Canada for leaving one of my motherlands for leaving a review on the pod. And Amy T23 writes a modern day goddess. This is the most empowering podcast for women ever. Dr. Stima or Dr. Stephanie is honest, raw, relatable, and tackles so many different subjects, all with healing and becoming a better you. I'm so very grateful to have stumbled across this. Have a listen. You won't be disappointed and you'll be empowered. Amy T. Well, Amy, girl, let me just send you a virtual hug out on the, along the airwaves, the radio waves that you are listening to this podcast on. I super appreciate the time that you took to write this. And I hope that this will, this review will help other Bettys like you find the pod. And if you have been listening, uh, anybody other than Amy T, if you have been listening and finding the podcast useful for you, I would love to read out your pod on the show uh, as we close out for the week on a high note. And uh, it means a lot to me. I know that uh, you are all very busy, very important people. Um, So taking time out to write a review on the podcast, if it has helped you in any way, is very much received with love and grace and with gratitude. So we will see you later on the pod this week for Geeky Magic. And until then, have a great day. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 